I uh, much appreciate those songs of worship. We serve uh, an incredible God, and, and uh, as we'll see, the lengths that He will go to to get our attention is just the only word of God is incredible. Um, just one other announcement, by the way. I've been informed that the movie The Overcomers is to begin showing at the theater on Friday. So you'll want to be uh, taking that in. Here it's a, a very good movie. Okay, we have a lot of ground to cover this morning. Case of we don't have, we've got so much to do, we can't afford not to pray. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. Thank you for this privilege. Thank you for um, gathering us together this morning, Lord. And uh, Lord, we, we know that many of our friends, our brothers and sisters, are elsewhere. They are. Um, and other communities, and Lord, we just ask that you would help them uh, to sense your nearness and to um, just to turn to you and to worship you as well. Father, as we look to your word, we need your help to understand what it is you want to say to us. So we ask, Father, that your spirit would move within each of us. That your word might come alive. That we might become the kind of people that will enjoy your presence. That we will seek you above all else. That, that, that through us, by your grace, by, by, by the working of your Spirit within us, that many others may also rejoice in the name of Jesus. We thank you for it all in his precious name. Amen. Okay, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 57. Um, we've got only three chapters to deal with this morning. So we should be done by all supper time or so. <laughs> um, if you happen to be using the Brown Bible in the pew, it's uh, page 1150. Through the past couple of months, we've been exploring some of the themes in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. And especially those passages relating to the uh, servant of the Lord. Now we don't know a lot about Isaiah. Um, from the description of his commissioning in chapter 6, it seems to me that he might have been a priest. Although later Jewish tradition places him as a nephew to King Amaziah of Judah. In any case, 
in the year that King Uzziah died, uh, somewhere around 740 B.C., he was engaged in worship or other temple duties when he was interrupted by a vision of the Lord God and subsequently commissioned to bring his word to his people. Over the next six years or so, Isaiah faithfully spoke to the kings and leaders of his people, both to the northern and to the southern kingdoms. But as every prophet discovered, there are very few who like to be reminded of their sins. So according to tradition, Isaiah was martyred uh, about 680 B.C. during the reign of the evil king Manasseh. He was martyred by being sawn in two inside a hollow log. But the record of Isaiah's 60 years of ministry is before us. And what a record it is. What a record of the word of God to his people. What a record of the longing heart of God. And the length that he is prepared to go to win our affections. Now most of us are familiar with Isaiah 53. And for a few weeks we've been we've had the privilege of exploring this core of the gospel grace that is ours. That ugly crucifixion of the Lord Jesus on a rough wood cross that had been intended for me, for you. A crucifixion that both King David and Isaiah described centuries before it was developed as an instrument of torture and execution. And we've seen that even back then, some 700 years before the glorious event, even back then Isaiah had prophesied the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And the past little while we've had the privilege of exploring something of what that means to us. Last week our brother Phil outlined something of the restoration of salvation that has been made available because the Lord Jesus is faithful. Because he chose to endure the cross and for the joy that was set before him despised the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And today we embark on a quick look at three more chapters of this fascinating book. Each chapter will present us with a choice. We can either do our own thing, go our own way, or we can receive all that God has promised and provided for us in Jesus. But we can't have both ways. In Isaiah chapter 57, the first choice is presented to us as the choice between rebellion 
and refuge. Now we, we really need to go back a few verses in chapter 56. So we'll start at uh, 56 and verse 9. Remember, verse and chapter divisions are a relatively recent addition to the scriptures. So take, the, take those divisions with a grain of salt. They, they help us to locate things, but that's about the limit. Verse 9, chapter 56 and verse 9. All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge. They are all silent dogs, they can't bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow we'll be like this day, great beyond measure. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity and he enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. But you, draw near, sons of the sorcerers, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valley under the clefts of the rocks, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion, they, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering, you have brought grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? On a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial for deserting me. You have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. You have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You are weary with the length of your way, but you did not say, It's hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and you were not faint. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time? You did not fear me. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath will take them away. Things were pretty bad in Isaiah's day. Both in Israel, the northern kingdom, and in Judah, the southern kingdom. It was grim. Think of the sins these people were committing blatantly. Occult practices, sexual immorality, mockery of anything godly, idolatry, extreme child abuse, including parents who sacrifice their own children to idols. And all that coupled with little to no concern of truth, no concern for justice, and at most lip service to the laws of God. 
In addition to all this, there was political uncertainty so that strategic alliances with other nations were being sought. Alliances that always came with a very high price. Things were so bad that a couple of chapters later, Isaiah summarized the situation like this. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth has stumbled in the public squares and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. And these people, described in the language that we just read, these are people who were who bore the name of the living God. And you stop and look at it. Doesn't it sound familiar? Doesn't that sound like a like some descriptions of modern Western society? But the shocker, the shocker is that even in their rebellion, God is still calling. He doesn't sugarcoat the situation, but he makes it clear that the invitation is still open. He says, but you, draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And then listen to the promise. Verse 14. It shall be said, build up, build up, repair the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Thus says the Holy One who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me in the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his way. But I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of lips. Peace. Peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal them. Can you hear the longing heart of God? He's already acted to remove every obstruction from His people's way. He's done it all. Just a few chapters earlier, Isaiah had proclaimed of the Lord Jesus. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted. 
He was wounded for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep had gone astray, we had turned every one to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There is no obstruction in the way anymore. Nothing to keep us from the refuge and the healing grace of the one who loves us so. Nothing, that is, except our own stubborn rebellion. Just look at the list of sinful behavior that we just read. Do you see yourself there? And yet, this God still holds the door open. He still sent His Son to die in your place and in mine. The redemption that Jesus prepared is still available. It's still there for you and for me to claim. But, confirmed and continuing rebellion inevitably has its price. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet as waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But God knows how and he has the power to change even the most rebellious heart. So that we want to find refuge in him. The second choice outlined in Isaiah 58 is between ritual and relationship. It seems to be a very human failing that we want to have a process. We want a system so that we can check it off at the end of the day and declare, I have done everything that was expected of me. And that may be one of the reasons why to-do lists are so popular. Because they help us measure our progress. The problem is that relationships aren't like that. There's so much about interpersonal relationships that simply cannot be boiled down to a list of things to do and a list of things to avoid. Brother Steve shared a couple of weeks ago that the word righteousness refers to far more than law keeping. One scholar defined righteousness as to be right hearted, to be consistent, to be thorough, to be correct, true to fact. The prophet Amos used the word to refer to a goodness that is so natural and spontaneous that no one could think of it for a moment as mere conformity to the norm or fulfillment of the law. 
far, far more than that. Righteousness is a relationship word that describes the person who naturally and habitually does whatever the relationship with the other person requires for their good. And in that sense, it's closely closely allied with the Hebrew word chesed that you find frequently translated, especially in the Psalms, as mercy and steadfast love. Hesed speaks of God's covenant-keeping love. We break the covenant, he keeps it. And it's also allied in the, in the, uh, the sense of the New Testament Greek word agape, which speaks of a self-giving, sacrificial love for the beloved such as Jesus has shown us as he willingly took our sin and shame to the grave. Isaiah 58, verse 1. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness, did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose a day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? See, the problem with Isaiah's people was that, that he outlines here, it was not so much lack of religious observance as empty ritual. Leaders and common folk alike loved the form of religion. They'd forgotten the substance behind it. They were presuming on God's righteousness while not being righteous themselves. And they were attempting to manipulate God into doing what they wanted. This scripture is here as a warning for our benefit as well. What expressions of faith have we allowed to de degenerate into mere empty form? Where have we forgotten the substance behind, for example, prayer? Or even the breaking of bread? Or even our gathering on Sunday mornings like this around the Word of God? Where have we forgotten? Each of us has to answer that one. Himself. 
But let's take heed, lest we find ourselves in the same place as Isaiah. But I want you to look carefully at what the Word of God is saying. There is no denunciation here of the practice of fasting. But only of the empty rituals. Read through the Gospels and you find that Jesus himself seems to assume that Christians will fast, at least on occasion. What is denounced here is the attempt to get something from God through fasting. God cannot be manipulated. True fasting, fasting that is accompanied with repentance, with obedient behavior, with the desire to seek God and to align our hearts with His. Now that is the kind of fasting He will honor. As I read the rest of this chapter, I found the scene of the final judgment as Jesus described it in Matthew 25 ringing in the background. Unfortunately, we don't have time this morning to read it. But I want you to promise promise me that you will read it this afternoon. Because these verses describe a life of righteousness, spontaneous goodness, generosity, caring, compassion, that is far from mere observance of the letter of the law. And no wonder the, the, the Lord promises His rich blessing on such a person whose heart is fully in tune with Him. In your heart, when my heart begins to beat in step with the fathers, he is able to work in us and through us in demonstration of the kingdom. There are some promises here. But this is not a carte blanche. This is no blank check that God is granting us. These blessings the glory, the healing, the rich harvest, the, the rebuilt ruins and so on. These blessings are not ours to use for our own pleasure. They are to allow us to do more for more people. To more widely demonstrate the love, the compassion, the righteousness of the Father. We turn to chapter 59 and see the same pattern repeated. The choice here is presented in yet another way. This this time is a choice between separation and salvation. Remember in chapter 57 we saw the, the, uh, the prophet's declaration of the sinfulness of the people followed by the declaration of the grace of our God. The choice being between rebellion and refuge. Chapter 58, same pattern. Declaration of the presumptive repetition of hollow ritual. 
followed by the promise of God to welcome those who act in righteousness. So the choice between empty ritual and relationship. Each time the offer is made, each one of us has to make a choice. And in chapter 59, again, we have a choice to make. Chapter 59 and verse 1. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened so that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. If you've ever done any studies in philosophy, you have no doubt encountered what is usually referred to as the problem of evil. The problem is usually stated something like this. If God is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-loving, why is there evil in the world? If He's all-knowing, then He'll know what's happening. If He's all-powerful, He has the resources to do something about it. If He's all-loving, He would want to see His creatures protected. Since evil obviously exists, God, if He exists, must be lacking in one or more of these categories. The problem is that those who propound this problem in an attempt to show that our God is merely a figment of our imagination, they fail on a couple of points. Uh, One is, how do you know what is evil unless there is a standard for good? You have to have an outside standard for good somewhere. And the other is that they fail to reckon with the infinite wisdom of our God. And in His wisdom, God chooses where and when to intervene in human history and under what terms. And He has intervened, but He leaves us with the terrible freedom to choose whether to surrender to Him or not. So the Lord here declares His readiness to save. The issue is not on God's side. He has already done everything that can be done. He sent His Son, the servant of the Lord, the Lord Jesus. And Jesus fulfilled the Father's will because because of His love for us. The Lord Jesus laid down His holy, spotless life for me and for you. What more could He have done? And then on the third day after His death, Jesus rose from the dead and is now today at this very moment at the Father's side interceding for us, presenting the blood of His sacrifice as sufficient 
for my sin and for yours. Can he do anything more? But the issue is on our side. The separation between us is erected by our own sin and sinfulness, by our own rebellion. And the catalog of sins, again in chapter 59, um, is, is reminiscent of any courtroom scene you have ever seen on TV. I encourage you to read this catalog of sins in verses 4 through 8. And you'll find that it sounds an awful lot like Romans 3. When Paul quotes from this passage, he's arguing that all of us have sinned and that there is not a righteous person among us, but that all of us have fallen far short of the glory of God. At verse 9, though, chapter 59, there is a marked change. If you read it, look for change. Verses 1 through 8, Isaiah is speaking and he's talking about them. He's talking about you, about them. Verse 9, he starts using the first person pronoun. He says, justice is far from us. Righteousness does not overtake us. Verse 10, we grope for the wall like the blind. We stumble at noon as in twilight. Verse 11, we all growl like bears. Verse 12, our transgressions are multiplied before you. And so on. Isaiah is identifying with his people. He confesses the sin that has entangled them. There's no excuse making, no attempt at justifying the behavior or the attitudes, no blame shifting. He is one with his people. And he's praying here like Daniel will a few centuries later. Like Daniel and Ezra and Nehemiah and others confessing the sin and rebellion of His people. And in response to the prayer of His people, His people who are nonetheless stained by sin, God acted. He's not some impotent wimp. He's not wringing His hands in despair. He's not taken by surprise. Isaiah 59 and verse 15. The Lord saw it and it displeased Him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then His own arm brought Him salvation. His righteousness upheld Him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds. So he will repay wrath to his adversaries. 
repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and His glory from the rising of the sun. For He will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. Given all that the Lord has done, Everything from the flood through the exodus. All the mighty acts of deliverance that the descendants of Abraham had experienced up to Isaiah's time. We're not even speaking of the Lord Jesus here. Given all of that 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 God had already done, It was disappointing to him that there was no justice and no one ready to intercede on behalf of the righteous remnant or even on behalf of the newly penitent. Paul put it 700 years later, none is righteous, no, not one. All have sinned, fall short of the glory of God. There are limits even to God's patience. And there's a time for Him to intervene in human history and a time for the final judgment. The crucifixion, the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus was the crown of that intervention. But if we could have seen what was going on in the background, if we could have seen that event from God's perspective, we would have seen it as much, much more than the simple miscarriage of justice that sent a Galilean carpenter to death on a Roman cross. We might well have seen something like Isaiah's description. The Lord God coming out in full armor to attack the forces of evil to rescue those He loves to subdue His enemies. And we might well have seen the forces of evil cowering under the gaze of the Mighty One as He declared their final and complete condemnation. On our side, the cross was merely the opening salvo, one part of God's attack on evil. From our perspective, We have to live in this messy world somewhere between the victory of the resurrection and the triumph of the final judgment. While the forces of evil do everything they can to avoid acknowledging the victory that the Lord Jesus has over sin and death. But from an eternal perspective, it's all done. It's finished. It's complete. And only celebration remains. So the question before us, and I apologize, we've gone way over time. The question before us is how to choose. Will we choose rebellion or refuge? Ritual, relationship, separation or salvation? 
On the one side, rebellion, empty ritual, separation. Folk who chose that can only reap the results of their own deeds. There is nothing else. But on the other side, those who choose refuge, relationship, salvation, those benefit from the completed work of the Lord Jesus. They are they who receive the free gift of grace in Christ Jesus. Which will it be? Moment by moment, day by day, we have to make that choice. Father, You have revealed Your heart. You revealed how You have done everything that is needed. Everything to answer our rebel hearts. To answer our sinful tendencies. To answer our bent nature. You revealed it all, Lord. You've done it all. You've done it all in Jesus' name. You've done it all at the cross, at the empty tomb. You've given us a glimpse of what You have accomplished in eternity. And You've invited us to the celebration. You've invited us to rejoice with You. Father, work in us in spite of us. Work in us so that every moment, every day, will bring You praise and honor. Not because of what we have done, but because of what You have accomplished in Jesus. Lord, that we might exalt His name. That we might openly declare Your grace to everyone around us that they too might receive what You have given. Father, we thank You. Thank You for all of this. In the precious name of Jesus. Amen.